Oh, well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Um, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you, there is uh, one in a pew somewhere near you. Feel free to grab that. Um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Um, I have nothing for you. All I have is God's Word, and, uh, and I'm excited to, uh, to see what God has for us together. Um, so Matthew chapter 1. Over the last few weeks, we've been kind of building this historical framework for Christmas, looking at uh, this, this long list of names that Matthew starts with. He opens up his book with this, this genealogy, this historical record, uh, and it's not just for interest's sake. It's theologically rich. He's, he's showing us that this, this Jesus uh, is, in fact, the son of Abraham, through, God, through whom God had promised to bring hope for the hopeless, to bless the whole world. And, and this Jesus, as we work our way through the genealogy, uh, turns out to also be the son of David, through whom God promised to bring a king uh, that would bring peace, a king that would bring rest forever. And those promises are so grand and so lofty. All of Israel's hope could, could kind of be put under those two headings and wrapped up in that, uh, in those two great promises. And yet, they barely scratch the surface, church. They are just the, the beginning of what God had planned for that first Christmas. There's a reason that Christmas is a time of wonder and awe. And listen, that should not diminish as you get older. That shouldn't wear off on us. Um, we've thought this way. We've talked this way. You know, the, the joy of Christmas, the wonder, the sparkle in the children's eyes, right? That's for kids, but we mature and we grow out of that. God forbid that any one of us would ever outgrow the wonder of Christmas. On the contrary, as we grow older and our understanding deepens, we ought to be all the more enamored and in awe, in amazement at what ought to flow into worship over what the Lord did that first Christmas. Uh, the reality of what happened uh, is so much more than we often give it credit for. Christmas at its center is about a great and marvelous miracle, a miracle that absolutely demands our awe and wonder. Again, Matthew's laid out for us the, the physical genealogy of Jesus, showing us the, the earthly lineage from which he has come. And then he rounds the corner in, in the uh, chapter, or verse 18 there, showing us that, that he's not only the son of David, the son of Abraham, but this Jesus by the working of, I think, one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle in all of Scripture, that this Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. So follow along with me, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us. Forgive us that we have lost the awe and wonder that we should hold about this great miracle. God, open our eyes afresh this morning. Help us to see your word clearly. Lord, I pray that you would be with my mouth, God, that you would speak through me your truth. God, that you would guard me from error this morning. But Lord, that you would work in our hearts to see and to love Christ all the more this morning as we look into your word. God, would you you be at work in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Now, it doesn't look like it as you come to verse 18. It looks like we're kind of done with this stuffy old genealogy stuff, but it's not the case. What we have here uh, is, in a sense, another genealogy. Um, This is the other, other side of Jesus' family. Um, Verse 18 um, begins saying, now the birth of Jesus came about in this way. And, and that word birth is the same Greek root. Uh, it's, a, it's a similar word um, to the word genealogy from verse 1. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, here it is. And now another genealogy of Jesus Christ, another origin story, the rest of the picture is here in verse 18 and following. The son of David, the son of Abraham, tells us some about his lineage. And here um, we see the miracle of Christmas, the rest of the story. This is it. This is where that wonder begins. Point one, the miracle of Christmas. J.I. Packer says this, It is here, and the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. That's, that's J.I. Packer. I don't know if you know that name. That guy is like top-notch, old-school, godly scholar. Um, the most profound, the most unfathomable depths of Christianity lie at Christmas? I don't think we see it that way. I think we miss that. I think we overlook that so flippantly. We call it the virgin birth, but what we're really talking about is the virgin conception, right? The birth wasn't a surprise, it's the conception. Um, That's where the miracle took place. And and let's just kind of walk through these these first verses and, uh, and, and see what's playing out. So verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, um, don't be confused. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. Um, It's the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. Uh, This is Jesus whom God chose to be the rescuer, his savior that he promised from so many years ago um, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And here the the translators use an old school word, an odd word, a word we're unfamiliar with, uh, and they do that on purpose because he's talking about a concept that we're unfamiliar with. Um, They are not engaged as we think of engagement. Um, They're much more like married, And, and yet... Um, 
typical in their day. Um, if, if their story was typical, Joseph would have been somewhere in his kind of mid to late teens, maybe early 20s. Um, Mary would have been in her young teen, early teen years. Uh, and their parents would have arranged this marriage. Um, Joseph, or maybe his parents, would give a large sum of money to Mary's parents as kind of a guarantee. This is to kind of seal the deal. And, uh, and then they would wait. They are officially husband and wife, declared so. Um, but, but there's this period then of waiting for about a year. And in that time, um, they would still typically live at their own parents' homes. The, the, the young man would be probably building a home for his new wife and his new family, and, uh, and, and, and they're waiting. And the, and the wife uh, is, is proving her faithfulness and her purity as she waits for her husband. After that period of about a year is over, then they would have the big celebration and, and the culmination of that is that the, the, the groom would go to the home of his bride's parents where she lived and take her by the arm and take her back to the home that he had built. And then they would consummate their marriage. And so it's not out of the ordinary that Matthew says they're betrothed, but they had not yet come together. Um, that's normal. That was to be expected what was unexpected is that now Mary is found to be with child. If this had been a natural conception, this would have been uh, the breaking of their marriage vows. It, it would have been um, adultery. And, and that betrothal, that engagement was serious enough. You didn't just walk away from it like we do today. Um, you needed a divorce. It was an official proceeding to break a betrothal. And, uh, and for marital unfaithfulness, that was to be expected. That was the norm, and uh, it would be the husband um, to press the charges, as it were, and he could go anywhere from, from publicly shaming her to having her stoned. That was his right. Joseph, being a righteous man, we're told, decided to deal with it quietly. Um, he would simply break it off. He would leave Mary living at her parents' home. Um, his family would get their money back because she was the one who broke the, co the covenant. And... Uh, and she wouldn't be broadly disgraced, but she would never marry again. She would be left um, as, um, with her child disgraced and shameful. But, but this is not a natural pregnancy. Um, Joseph is then told in a dream, uh, and Matthew goes out of his way to, to make this abundantly clear. Verse 18 uh, says that uh, this was before they had come together and that she was with child from the Holy Spirit. The angel then tells Joseph in the dream, verse 20, this child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then uh, in case you missed it, down to verse 25, uh, Matthew reiterates it again. Uh, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So this baby is not the product of infidelity. It's not the breaking of this sacred marriage covenant. Rather, he had no human father. He was placed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. As laid out plainly here in Matthew, Luke makes it just as clear, just as plain. Um, interestingly, um, if we go all the way back to Genesis, the first promise of that rescuer, Genesis 3.15, the promise that God would send a Messiah, it says that he would put enmity between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman, and that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That language is really weird. Offspring of the woman is not 
typically used. That, that word offspring could also be translated seed. Um, it, it, it's so strange to speak of the offspring of the woman, and yet there it is. God is foreshadowing the virgin birth. And this miracle changes everything. Jesus is not simply a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham, as if that wasn't grand enough. This miracle, the virgin birth, says he is so much more. And Jesus himself kind of draws this out as he's, um, as he's talking with the Pharisees. Matthew 22, um, 41 to 42, he says this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? He's putting them on the spot. Tell me about this Messiah that we're all waiting for. <clears throat> it's me. Um, what do you think about him? Whose son is he? Talk about a setup. And they say, well, he's the son of David. Right answer, right? I mean, this is the, the Messiah, the son of David who would come to be king. We just looked at that and all the prophecies about that. They, they weren't wrong. But then Jesus points out something they had missed. You, got, you don't quite get it. And he takes them, verses 43 to 45, look at Jesus' answer to them. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So do you see Jesus' logic here? He's got them totally confused, and maybe rightly so. He's quoting from Psalm 110. And, and, and this is David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, um, talking about the coming of the Messiah. And he's going to be David's descendant, David's son. And yet Jesus points out that David says, the Lord, and, and back in, in Psalm 110, that's all caps, that's Yahweh said to my Lord. And he calls the Messiah, his son, my Lord. Again, very atypical. In that day, in that culture, um, the, the, the son always looked up to the father. It wasn't about your position in this world. It wasn't about uh, any of that. It, that. That lineage was so significant to them. The father or the son always honored the father, not the other way around. And here we see um, David, the father, calling his son, his descendant, Lord. And Jesus again asks, and whose son is he? This is a big deal. He's not just the son of Abraham. He's not just the son of David. Even David in the spirit prophesied that in Psalm 110, pointed that out. Um, there, there's something far greater going on here. This Jesus is the son of God. This miracle, this wonder of wonders. The Messiah is not just a human rescuer. The Messiah is not just a man at Christmas, God himself. Like, just try to wrap your head around that. God himself, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who holds the oceans in the, in the palm of his hand, the one who measures the stars by the span of his hands, the one who, who conceived of the very idea of DNA and who ordered the inner workings of the cell that we just don't even have a clue what's going on. That God, in the miracle of the virgin birth, entered into this world as a man. Early in the 20th century, as modernism was really kind of being established, um, 
It was common. It was in vogue for people to say, well, I'm a Christian, but come on, we know better, right? Like, we know that virgins don't conceive and bear children. That doesn't happen. We're, we're scientific now. Like, we get these things. And, and it's a nice myth. It's a children's story. But, but no serious person can really believe that, can they? They completely lost it. They, they denied the wonder of Christmas. This is like the, the real-life version of no longer believing in Santa Claus, right? Like the magic of Christmas is gone, but in a serious way. And a lot of people said, you know, it's just not that big a deal. It just doesn't really matter. Virgin birth, no virgin birth. Is it really literally true, or is it just kind of metaphorically feel-good kind of true? Does it really matter? Well, to quote Albert Moeller, Those who deny the virgin birth, reject the authority of Scripture, deny the supernatural birth of the Savior, undermine the very foundations of the gospel, and have no way of explaining the deity of Christ. Um, In short, yeah, it matters. It matters significantly. Um, In some ways, the the virgin birth is is like the, the canary in the theological coal mine, right? Is it a big deal that the canary died? Yes, it's significant. To deny this miracle is to subtly, maybe even unknowingly, um, remove the very foundations of the Christian faith. The virgin birth isn't just a party trick. It wasn't just God showing off, look what I can do. Um, It has massive theological implications. The miracle of the virgin birth ought to leave us in wonder and awe and worship, and and not just because of the physical reality that happened, but but because of the the grand theological implications under that. So here we move from the the miracle of Christmas to the mystery of Christmas. Going a little bit deeper, the mystery of Christmas. What exactly happened at that virgin conception? And in this mystery we find here is, is what is called uh, the incarnation. Have you ever been to an Italian restaurant and you want your pasta con carne with meat? Um, this is deity with meat. It is Christ coming in the flesh. And, and we just have to admit from the beginning, um, there's a certain amount of just plain mystery here. We come to the edge of what our puny minds can comprehend. Um, But there is much that we can know. Um, There is much that is plainly revealed. And and so we need to hold on to those things that we know to be true uh, and go as far as we can in understanding what God has clearly revealed to us. And so uh, the term that we use to try to describe this this mystery um, is the hypostatic union. And so you have my permission. This is your Christmas jargon for the year. Um, Go ahead, just let people know. Uh, I am celebrating the advent of the hypostatic union. Um, You can throw a hypostatic union party. Um, Don't worry about COVID restrictions. You sound like a nerd. Nobody's coming to your party, okay? Um, But throw that out. See if you can get some funny looks. But these fancy words matter. They serve a purpose. They're important for us. Um, They're not biblical words in themselves, but they become buckets in which we can put biblical ideas and kind of hold these things together. And so the the hypostatic union is, uh, it comes from the Greek word hypostasis, um, and and, and, uh, that just means nature or being. So it's a question of what is Jesus? 
What's his nature? Like, I have a human nature. My dog has a dog or animal nature. What is Jesus? And the answer to that is his nature is a union. It's not a simple nature. It's two things. The hypostatic union. The person of Jesus is not just human nature, and it's not just divine nature. It's a, it's a union of the two. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, he's, he's not partially God or God-like. He is God himself. He is the fullness of divine nature in him. So um, Micah 5.2, another great common Christmas verse, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Jesus didn't begin to exist at Christmas. He just came into the world from existing in eternity past. He's eternal. John 1.1 says this of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down into verse 14, um, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was with God, and he was God. There's, there's Trinity implications there, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. John 10.30, Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. Or one. He has full deity and all that goes with it. Colossians 1.17 says this about Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Just let that blow your mind for a minute. Baby Jesus is laying in the straw in the manger, crying for his mother's milk, trying to figure out how to move his fingers, and at the same time holding the universe together. He's fully God, but he's not just God with skin on. He's, it's not that simple. He's not a human shell with God inside. He, he has the divine nature, but he also has, at the same time, a full human nature. Hebrews 2.17 says that, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Just read through the Gospels. You see it everywhere. Watch for the humanity of Jesus. He's like us physically. He has a body. It needed to rest. He needed to sleep. Uh, he needed food and water. He was dependent on those things. He's like us mentally. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus increased in wisdom. He, he didn't teach the Sermon on the Mount from the high chair. He, he had to learn how to speak and, and grow in understanding. He's like us emotionally. Jesus is often said to be troubled. He's, he grieves. He weeps. He rejoiced and laughed. He had a, a full personality. He's fully human like us in every way except one. Hebrews 4.15 says that even though he was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. Without sin. That's part of the miracle of this virgin birth. Jesus um, breaks the human chain. 
right? The descendants from Adam where the the sinful nature is passed down from generation to generation and we're born corrupted and broken by sin. Jesus comes from outside that. He isn't born with a sinful nature like we are. He is without sin. So he's fully God and fully man. That's that's the wonder of this hypostatic union. And, And this is where we approach the edge of mystery. And we're limited in, in our understanding as we, as we try to push into this. And you can always tell when theologians hit the edge of understanding. Because um, here's what they do. They switch from positive statements to negative statements. Right? Not that they're saying mean things. Um, but, but we can no longer say what it is. All we can say is what it's not. Okay? So we just kind of draw these boundaries around the hypostatic union and what's happening inside the person of Christ. And so... The Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD, way back when um, the church is wrestling through these issues. Who is Jesus? How do we understand this? And, and they got all the church leaders gathered together and they formed this beautiful statement. It's, it's, it's much longer than I'm going to look at today. Um, and it's helpful. It's helpful because it's true to scripture. It reflects what God's word teaches and the church has used it and continues to use it today. Um, And and here's the the most helpful sentence out of that statement that that we often refer to. It says that Christ exists in these two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So you say, well, what exactly is going on? I don't know. But it's without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So the human nature and divine nature are not confused. They don't mingle together. They don't form, as the philosophers would say, a tertium quid, a third thing, kind of a half-man, half-God hybrid. They're not mingled. They're not confused. And they're not changed. As if his humanity is no longer a true humanity and his deity is no longer a true deity. No, they're, they're united in such a way that the integrity of both is maintained. He's true man and true God. And yet without division. The two natures united in Christ, um, he's not half man, half God. He he didn't have deity on one shoulder and humanity on the other bickering back and forth. He's one person and without separation. The two natures are truly and completely united. And in fact, um, he will never be separated. Um, Jesus exists now and into eternity as a resurrected man like we will. That's the mystery that makes this miracle of Christmas so profound. The wonder of the God-man. This is astounding. This is, this is so important. This is the reason that Christmas is, is one of our two highest of holy days. And it ought to be that Christmas, God became man. I feel like we kind of get tainted with all of the, the consumerism around Christmas. And maybe, you know, that's okay. That's problematic. Um, but don't go so far as to say, oh, it's just Christmas. Why does people make such a big deal of it? Why is it so overrated? It's not. It's underrated. It's, it's appreciated for the wrong reasons. But it's still underappreciated. This is one of our greatest celebrations. And it should be. Humanity and divinity are united. We have this touchstone, this point of contact now with God himself. Yahweh himself, who who dwells in unapproachable light, who in the, the magnificence of his glory declares, no one can see my face and live. 
And he's not only revealed himself to us, but he's come to us in a way that is so tangible, so understandable and relatable, so that Jesus in the flesh can say, John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's nothing that would satisfy the longings of the human soul like the God-man. It's fully God, and yet we can, we can see him and, and relate to him and understand him. Don't underestimate the miracle of Christmas, the wonder of wonders, the word become flesh and dwelt among us. So the miracle of Christmas and the, the mystery of Christmas, but we can't stop there. Um, the miracle and the mystery of Christmas happen for a very specific purpose. We have to understand the mission of Christmas. What's this all about? We'll look back at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Um, Joseph is being told about this miracle and what would happen. Uh, then verses 21 uh, through 23, 25 there um, tells us why it would happen. Why is this going to be? Jesus is given two names. One is his literal human name that his father gave him. The other is more of an honorific title. But both clearly tell us about the mission of this miracle. Why did Jesus come that first Christmas? What's the point here? Well, the name Jesus gives us a pretty clear answer. Notice the angel says, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins, from their sins. As if there's some kind of logical connection between the name Jesus and the act of saving people from their sin. And, and, and there is. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves because Jesus would save his people. Now there's a little beautiful hint in there as well. You notice his name is Yahweh saves because he, Jesus, will save his people. Who is this Jesus? He's, he's Yahweh. And he will save his people from what? From their sin. There's a lot assumed in that right there. It assumes that God's people are captive. It assumes that God's people are enslaved, needing to be rescued from the power of sin. We have this enemy that holds us captive uh, and, it, and it dwells within us. Our hearts, our very desires are enslaved to sin and are, are, we're born in this state of captivity, rebellious against God, loving the things that we should not love, running after the very things that will destroy us, ruling our own lives as if we are God and kind of casting off God's rightful place of authority. It's that power of sin that's that's corrupted this world. It's the source of every pain and suffering that we face here today. And that rebellion against God earns us his rightful wrath. Infinite penalty in hell for our treason against an infinitely holy God. And here the beauty of, and the, the, the miracle and the mystery of Christmas really begins to shine. This is where it all makes sense. Why the God-man? Why was this necessary? Hebrews 2.17 puts it beautifully. Therefore, he had to be made. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, here's why, and there's two things. First, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus had to be made human 
so that he could be a priest to God on our behalf, so that he could represent us before God. He doesn't represent us at arm's length like a, like a lawyer represents his client. No, he represents us like a father represents his family, like a, like a team captain represents his, his team, like a champion represents his country. He's part of us and he stands in our place as our representative before the father. And what a glorious thing that he's one of us representing us, but he is also God himself. Right, And so he stands in our place and the, the place of the guilty in the courtroom, but, but he is also sitting in the judge's seat. That's a good representative to have. That's why 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, our representative. He is our mediator, and he had to be Man, he had to be one of us to represent us, but, but keep going, Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like us, not only that he could represent us, but that he would be our propitiation. That is to say, he would take the punishment that we deserved. He would satisfy the wrath of God that we deserve. So he stood as our representative, as one of us, and took our penalty. The wrath of God. Because he was one of us, he could play that role in representing us. And because he was infinite God, he could bear, as it were, on his shoulders over the course of three hours on the cross what would have taken you and I an eternity in hell to experience. He took it all. Not one drop left. The virgin birth, the hypostatic union. It's the only way to make sense of the logic of the cross. It's central to, to understanding Christianity. It's the only viable sacrifice as a man who had no sin and, and, and had to be God to absorb the penalty of many. That's why he came. That was his mission from the very beginning and not just from the manger, but from creation to display the wonder of his glory, the, the miracle of Christmas that, that culminates on the cross as the perfect display not only of God's justice and righteousness and rightful wrath against sin, but also his mercy and his grace and his love for sinners. They come together. He came to be our rescue. Don't miss that. Jesus didn't come to give us good advice. Jesus didn't come to throw us a rope and say, go ahead and climb out. He didn't come to give us a road map and say, come find your way to God. He came to pull us out of the pit from which we never could have climbed. He did the rescue. And in verse 22, not only will his name be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. But Matthew tells us all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew, writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us this is fulfilling Isaiah 7. And I just got to tell you, there's a lot of Old Testament commentators, a lot of Jewish commentators who would say Isaiah 7 didn't need fulfilling. 
It wasn't looking forward to anything. It was done. Um, Matthew says, oh, no, it wasn't. There's more. You missed it. To understand what's going on here, why, why does Matthew go to Matthew seven, or to Isaiah 7? We, we have to understand the context and, and what's going on in Isaiah's world. Um, Isaiah first spoke these words to Ahaz, the king of Judah. Uh, at that time, Judah was being threatened um, by Syria and Samaria, and uh, it wasn't looking good. They were going to be destroyed, wiped out. The people of God, right, where the temple of God was, the line of David dwelt there. This is all their hope, and they're about to be destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. They're terrified. It's dark, hopeless, hopeless time. And they're crying out to God. What's, help us. Why are we here? This isn't the way it was supposed to go. This was not the plan. The king was supposed to come from David's line who would rule and bring peace and we were supposed to have it all culminate here and, and if we get wiped out, what does that mean? And the Lord spoke through Isaiah saying, don't worry, I'll protect you. You will not be destroyed. I will save, I will rescue my people. And he promised, even though it looks so dark and so hopeless and so dreadful right now, both of these mighty kings of Syria and Samaria that threaten you, they will be destroyed and you'll be protected, saved. And then he gives this sign of the virgin being with child. Um, and it's not so much in Isaiah, it's not so much about a miracle, uh, it's more of a timeline. Look at Isaiah 7, uh, 14 to 16. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose kings you now dread will be deserted. Okay, so curds and honey. Um, you don't eat curds and honey when you're under siege. You need time to make curds from your milk, not just surviving and picking the meat off the bones of your cow. Um, honey, you need to go out and collect it. These are luxury items. This child is going to live at peacetime. He's going to live in a time of prosperity. And all this would happen in the time it would take from a woman who was currently a virgin to be married and conceive and have a son. And that son would be living free and eating curds and honey before he was old enough to know right from wrong. And so then if you follow down into Isaiah 8, um, Isaiah himself takes a wife and they conceive and they have a child. In Isaiah 8, 4, um, the Lord says this of that child, before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, Damascus is the capital of Syria, he's still talking about Syria, and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. This is it. This is that promise being fulfilled. A virgin is going to conceive and have a child, and, and here it is. And, and this was the sign of Emmanuel. How would they know that God was with them? That before this child would grow to the point of being able to say mommy and daddy, or knowing right from wrong, God would rescue them. He would wipe out these two nations. It wasn't going to be long. It was going to happen soon. God was on their side. He was with them. He wouldn't let them be wiped out. 
No matter how painful and dark and hopeless it was, they were not abandoned. He would rescue them. It's what we call dual fulfillment. Um, Just like we talked about last week, looking at uh, David had the prophecy um, that his son would build a house for the Lord and and, and a kingdom that would last forever. And, And then Solomon is David's next son, and he does build a house for the Lord, the temple, and he does increase the kingdom, but he doesn't near fulfill the promise a kingdom forever, a kingdom of peace. Um, there's more. That, that promise is slightly fulfilled in Solomon, and there's this greater glorious fulfillment yet to come. And that's the case here in Isaiah 7. Um, it's partially fulfilled in Isaiah's son and, and Syria and Samaria being wiped out and God coming to their rescue. But God also has a much greater salvation in mind. And it's interesting, as you read through from Isaiah 7, you start to hear about this child, and then Isaiah 8, it looks like Isaiah's child. And then you come to Isaiah 9, and we're still talking about a child. But this child, he says, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's not Isaiah's child. That goes way out beyond something far more. This is a much bigger promise. This time the virgin would miraculously be with child and that child would literally be God with us. And in that he would fulfill in the fullest sense this promise that I will be with you. I will rescue you. I will not let you be destroyed and overcome by your enemies. I will save you. Church, we are, like Israel, small and weak in this world. We are threatened, not only um, not, not, not by physical military threats, but by the enemy of sin. And not only the sin Uh, in us, our own sin, but a sinful world around us and the fallout of sin that would seek to steal our joy and our hope and the attacks of Satan that that would tempt and seduce us not only into sin but into despair. And Christmas is this monumental declaration in the midst of the darkness of God saying, I will be with you. I will rescue you. You will not be destroyed. I will not abandon you. I will rescue you from every enemy, from every pain, from every sorrow, from every fear and doubt. What a glorious hope. That's the promise of Emmanuel. I invite the worship team to make their way back up as we close. Let us never lose that sense of awe and wonder that Christmas rightly deserves. The miracle of Jesus, God becoming man to save us from our sin, God with us. And it's so appropriate that we celebrate the miracle of Christmas in celebrating communion together. You can't separate the two. They, they, they come together. Jesus' death on our Behalf. That's the fullness of this rescue plan. Not just coming of Jesus for us, but the death of Jesus for us. 
So would you, would you stand with me as we remember this gift of a Savior? As we remember and celebrate God become man, born of a virgin, our perfect high priest, and himself the sacrifice for our sin, God with us. Paul writes, For I now receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together, church. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together.